So if you listen to TV commercials, radio commercials, one of the common phrases you hear repeated is whatever it is they're selling is they tell you, you deserve this. Not just that you need this, you deserve this. You deserve a new house. You deserve a new car. You deserve a big vacation. You deserve to retire early. You deserve to look better, to smell better. Whatever it is, you deserve it. What's funny about that is it's mass marketing. So apparently if you have a pulse, you deserve all this. Quite a contrast from the words of Jesus when he called people to follow him. The message was not, follow me because you deserve this, 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 and this. The message was, if you're going to follow me, there's a price to be paid and you'd better count the cost. So this morning, if you would say in your heart of hearts, sincerely, you really want to be a Christ follower. You want your life to make a difference. You have to understand there is a cost to that. And that's what we want to talk about this morning. If you have a Bible, turn with us to Colossians chapter 1. If you're new with us, we're working our way through the book of Colossians. We pick it up in chapter 1, verse 24, that, end, that begins with the word now. Now is a reference to now that we have established the supremacy of Christ. It's what Ryan talked about last week, this absolutely magnificent view of Jesus. Now that we've established that, the message gets more personal. Now what are we going to do with that? He says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now for what it's worth, chapter 1 verse 24 is the most Debated, discussed, uh, analyzed verses in the entire book of Colossians. We're going to try not to get lost in all of that. I'm just going to give you what I think makes the most sense. I don't want to create unnecessary confusion. It is likely that the false teachers were focused on the fact that Paul was in prison. And the message probably went something like this. If Paul's telling the truth, if he has the favor of God on him, why is he sitting in prison? So Paul's responding to that. Says he's actually rejoicing in his sufferings for your sake. It's good to remind ourselves Paul isn't sitting in prison because he robbed the local U-stop. He's sitting in prison specifically 
because of his commitment to take the message of Jesus to the Gentiles. That was really the point of conflict. That's the point of tension. So Paul tells him that. Hey, I'm sitting in prison because of my commitment to deliver the message of Jesus to you. But he rejoices in that because he understands the message and the power of that message to transform their lives. When he says, and in my flesh, I think what he's saying is, in my heart, I'm joyful that I've been called to do this, but in his flesh, it is hard. It is suffering. He acknowledges that. And in my flesh, I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church. That little phrase there, I do my share. It's a little Greek phrase that was used to describe an athlete that was representing his or her city at what would have been the Greek Olympic Games. So in a sense, Paul is saying, yes, I'm sitting in prison because of my commitment to team church to be faithful to present the gospel. This is then where it gets debated. In filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. So what does that mean? Well, let's start with some of the terms. The term afflictions does not uh, refer to the work of Jesus on the cross. As a matter of fact, there's never a time in the New Testament where this word ever refers to the redemptive work of Jesus on the cross. There's nothing lacking. There's nothing that wasn't finished by Jesus on the cross. We refer to the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Jesus himself, when he hung on the cross, said, it is finished, to telestai. It was a banking term that means paid in full. Nothing more needs to be done. That's not what it's referring to. What it is referring to is the fact that because God became flesh, because Jesus was the light of the world, in Jesus' own words in John chapter 3, he says when the light came into the world, it shined into the darkness and exposed people's sin. So people in the darkness hate the light because they hate having their sin exposed. So all through the earthly ministry of Jesus, it was full of conflict. It was full of trials. It was full of persecution. It was full of afflictions. Some people seem to think that if Jesus once again came and walked on this earth as a man, Everyone would love him. Social media would love him. The culture would love him. He would rate really high in the Gallup polls. It's just not true. It's not true. Read the Gospels. That's not what happened the first time. Jesus stirred up a lot of stuff. 
So the idea of afflictions is if you're going to represent the light, if you're going to represent righteousness, if you're going to be faithful to represent Jesus, there's going to be afflictions. When it says in filling up, I think the best understanding of that is basically the idea of to supplement or to continue or probably the phrase I like best is to take my turn. When it says filling up what is lacking, the word lacking is an interesting Greek word. It has multiple definitions. But the one I think fits the best is also the way Paul used this same term in writing to the Corinthians and to the Philippians. So we have biblical support for this, and it's the idea of representing someone who is absent. So it's the idea what's lacking is they're not there, so someone represents them. So you put all that together, and there's the reality that Jesus has gone back to the Father, And now it is his body, the church, that represents him here on earth. So it's our turn as the body of Christ to share in his afflictions. It's our turn then to experience those trials and the conflict and the difficulties that come with representing the light, with representing truth and righteousness to a dark and confused world. So that's what verse 24 is saying. All through this part of Colossians, you'll see a lot of the words in italics. Whenever they're in italics, it tells you that isn't actually in the Greek. It's kind of filled in to help make sense I'm going to leave those out because I think the text reads more clearly without them. So he says, of this, I was made a minister. Now, when he says a minister, that's a really misleading term. Because typically what we hear is clergy. I was made a reverend. Sometimes people introduce me. This is our minister. It's a, it's an office. It's a title. That's not what this word means. This is a very ordinary term that just simply means a slave or a servant. He's been made a bondservant or a slave of Christ. Of this I was made a servant, a slave, according to the stewardship from God. Stewardship is a word that refers to like a a manager, The most common in the first century would have been a household steward. And almost all of those stewards were slaves. So the language really lines up here. So it's the idea of the household steward to manage the household for the master. So in this case, it's not a household, it's a message. I was made a minister, a servant, according to the stewardship from God, bestowed on me, we might call this a calling, for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the word of God. So Paul is saying, 
that yes, he's sitting in prison because he's taking his turn to represent the message of the gospel and it comes with afflictions, but this is his calling. He has been called to be a steward of the message of the gospel as a servant of Jesus. So up to this point in the text, it'd be easy to say, I'm not sure I really like that. I mean, what, what kind of a, what kind of an advertisement is that? You know, as consumers, we want to hear what's in it for us. What do I deserve? But starting then in verse 26, the reason this is so significant is because of the message, which is absolutely glorious. Verse 26, that is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but now has been manifested, unveiled to the saints to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery, here's the key, among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. In the Bible, mystery is not like mysterious, creepy, weird. Mystery simply refers to something that was previously unknown, that has been made known by God. The veil has been pulled back and it has been revealed. It's not something anyone could ever learn by investigating. It's something that had to be revealed by God. And that's what he's talking about here, that Paul lives in the generation that is experiencing the fulfillment of the promise of a Savior. And part of the message then, the pulling back of the curtain, is this amazing truth that all along God's heart has been for the Gentiles too. That they too might experience the magnificence of the riches of Christ. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Hope of glory is a reference to eternity. It's the idea of Christ in you, both now and forever. It's just hard for us to appreciate the level of tension and prejudice and hatred in the first century between the Jews and the Gentiles. But also understanding that these people understood that for hundreds and thousands of years, there was overwhelming evidence that there was something unique about the God of the Hebrews. These stories were passed on from generation to generation that the God of the Hebrews, unlike any other gods, had done amazing things in history. And if there is one true God, it would have to be the God of the Hebrews. But to the Gentiles, you're on the outside looking in with no hope. So they're up to their eyebrows in all these pagan religions and multiple gods and all these myths and all these futile attempts to somehow find Uh, what they're looking for to satisfy their souls that are searching for God. 
But it's hard to imagine what this would be like knowing that there is one true God and we will never have access to him because we're Gentiles. And then along comes this amazing message as the curtain is pulled back and Paul announces to the Gentiles, hey, guess what? Christ died for you. And you are invited. You have a seat at the table to experience all of these magnificent riches. Christ in you, the hope of glory. So Paul says, yes, I rejoice. Is it easy? No. He's suffering in his flesh. Prison was no fun. Was it hard? Yes. Did it cost him? Absolutely. Was it worth it? Absolutely. Yes. That's what he's saying. Now for us today, we don't have all this conflict with Jews and Gentiles in the sense of who's in and who's out. For us, the, the wonder of the message would be that Jesus offers salvation, the forgiveness of sin, the riches that are ours in Christ, the hope of glory to absolutely everyone. In that sense, it's the most inclusive message ever. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor. It doesn't matter if you're successful or homeless. It doesn't matter what the color of your skin is. It doesn't matter if you're male or female. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what's been done to you. None of that matters. Every single person has been offered the opportunity to experience the riches in Christ, the forgiveness of sin, the hope of glory. This is the amazing message of the gospel. Now stop and think about Right now, this morning, there are people all over our community who have no idea this is true. How many of them have tried and tried and tried every religion imaginable? They're probably hung over this morning trying to somehow escape their belief that no matter what they do, there's no way they could ever stand right before a holy God and they are doomed forever. And they have no idea this is what Jesus did for you. Our calling as the church is to take this message of hope into the darkness and tell people this is what Jesus has done for you. No matter who you are, simply by receiving God's gift by faith, you can stand right forever before a holy God. That is an absolutely amazing message. Paul says we've been made a steward of this message. Verse 28, we proclaim him, admonishing every man 
and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. So he says in verse 28, we proclaim the message of the gospel, which includes admonishing every person. That's a term that means to warn. It means to correct. Understanding the message of the gospel must include the light shining into the darkness and exposing sin. John Newton was the great slave trader that encountered the resurrected Christ and his life was radically transformed. He's the writer of the lyrics of the song Amazing Grace. At the end of his life, he said his, his mind was failing, but there were two things he knew to be true. I am a great sinner. Christ is the great Savior. But here's the deal. No one needs a great Savior if they do not realize that they are a great sinner. Jesus and the message of the gospel is not compelling if we aren't willing to acknowledge that there is such a thing as sin before a holy God. So the gospel, the light shining into the darkness, exposes sin. So the message includes admonition, warning, correction, as well as instruction. Teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. Hopefully that language sounds familiar. Because that is the verse from which we get our mission statement. To glorify God by seeking to present every person complete in Christ. You can't miss the fact that three times in that verse, every person, every person, every person. Every person means every person. Every person is someone made in the image of God with dignity and value. Every person is someone Jesus died for. Seeking to present every person. So what does that look like? As you think through your grid, I'm going to really shock you this morning. So hang on. But this even includes people who have differing political views than yours. 
It really does. Anything you say or do that makes it less likely that the people around you are going to listen when you talk about Jesus is a major strategic error. We as Christians have to make up our minds what matters most. Is it the message of the gospel? Or is it our political views? I've said it before, God's heart is not for America. It's for Americans. His heart is for the people that he died for. Every person means every person. Every person complete in Christ. We've talked this, about this before. What does that word complete mean? It's a little bit slippery. Complete, perfect, mature. The Greek word's translated different ways in different passages. But at the end of the day, the idea is reaching fulfillment. It's why the word perfect works pretty good because it's all the way to completion of what God started. Here's the reality of it. We can't complete anyone. God completes them. And I think he knows the definition of the term. So it's going to be okay. The New Testament's very clear. He starts it and he finishes it. He's going to complete what he started, bringing people to the fullness of whom he intended them to be in Christ. But what's so amazing about this passage is that somehow in God's sovereign plan, he has invited us to be part of the story. He has invited us to be stewards of the message of the gospel. To be proclaimers of the message of new life in Christ. This message full of hope. This message of forgiveness. Our job is to be proclaimers. His job is to save them and complete them. But the reality is in this short amount of time you have on planet Earth, you've been invited to be a part of something that will matter forever. And that's remarkable. Verse 29, for this purpose also I labor, striving. That word striving is the Greek word from which we get our word agony was typically used to describe an athlete agonizing all the way to the finish line or to win the contest. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. Back in the early 2000s, we launched what we called the Purpose Campaign. 
Guess what verse we used for that idea? What's right there, verse 29. It was the idea of seeking to be as effective as possible to accomplishing this mission that God has given us. So the campaign was the purpose campaign. For this purpose I live. It included this auditorium. It included the youth complex. It included planting a church up north, North Point Community Church, and planting churches in India. It's amazing now some 14 years since we've been in this facility. It'd be interesting to know what only God knows, and that is what has been the impact that has gone out from this place into our community and around the world. What has been the impact, the lives changed through the youth complex, through North Point, through the amazing things that God has done in India? When people ask me, what makes Lincoln Berean special? And I've told you this before, I always have the same answer. It's her people. For 60 years, it's been her people. Amazing people. God has faithfully, over the years, brought us amazing people who are willing to make the commitment to the gospel, who are willing to sacrifice, who are willing to serve, who are willing to count the cost to take a stand for righteousness, to take a stand to rightly represent Jesus to the world. And God has done amazing things. But we are always praying for God to keep raising up the next generation of people. When I say next generation, I don't just mean age. I'm not just talking about young people. We're talking about people that have come to Christ and are passionate about wanting to give their lives to something that will matter forever. You might be 50 years old and just come to Christ and you are so excited about pouring your life into something that will matter forever. It's the next generation of people that say, yes, I understand there's a cost. I understand this isn't going to be easy. But this message is absolutely glorious and I want to be part of something that will matter forever. But here's the deal. Just before you sign up, just want to be clear. It will cost you. There will be afflictions. There will be trials. We don't fit in here. People don't like it when the light exposes their stuff. Jesus couldn't have been more clear about this. They persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. So count the cost. The only alternative, and please hear me on this, the only alternative is to compromise. Is to water down the message. 
is to blend into the culture and to present a weak, watered-down Jesus who has no power to set people free, becomes a Jesus of our own making. If we're going to tell the truth, if we're going to stand for righteousness, if we're going to rightly represent Jesus to the world, there is cost. Paul's concern then is voiced starting in chapter 2, verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge, super knowledge, what we uh, called it in chapter 1, of God's mystery. That is Christ himself in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So here's what he said in simple terms. That Paul's agonizing over these people. He wants them to be encouraged. He wants their hearts to be welded together in love. He wants them to have a full understanding of the amazing treasures and wealth that is ours in Christ. But, verse 4, I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. What is Paul's concern? What is he agonizing over? That the false teachers will delude them. That doesn't mean denying Jesus. It means watering down Jesus. How do they do this? Through persuasive argument. Through smooth talking. And if they come to believe in a watered-down Jesus, they will fail to understand the treasure of the riches that are ours in Christ. Next week, we'll talk a little bit more about the specifics of what is that that the false teachers are talking about. He ends verse 5 with two terms. He's rejoicing that your good discipline and stability. Those are both military terms. He says, I'm rejoicing in the fact that you're still holding your ground. You're still taking your stand. So far, so good. But he is concerned. So here's the deal this morning. If you don't really care about Jesus, you really don't care about following him, you really don't care about the gospel, you're just kind of like, what's in it for me? This is probably of no real interest to you. 
But if you're sincere about wanting to be a Christ follower, if you're sincere about wanting to be a good steward of the message of the gospel, if really deep in your heart of hearts you say, I do want to be part of something that will matter forever, then you just have to understand it will cost you. There is a price that has to be paid. If you're going to stand for truth, if you're going to stand for righteousness, if you're going to rightly represent Jesus as the light of the world, don't expect the culture to love you and embrace you. If you're going to be a real Christ follower, you have to care more about the applause of heaven than being loved and accepted by the culture around you. That's the decision you have to make. But for those who are willing to count the costs, see, I get it. I'm in. We link arms with our brothers and sisters around the world. Many of whom for decades have paid a price we can't even imagine as Americans. But with courage and faithfulness, they have paid that price every single day. So we link arms. as we seek together to present every person complete in Christ. Our Father, we're thankful this morning of this absolutely amazing message so full of hope in a culture so full of darkness and despair. Lord, may we be faithful stewards of this message. As we leave this place out into our neighborhoods and around the world, Lord, may we rightly be your church. In Jesus' name, amen.